As podcast partner, we're pleased to be able to bring you a selection of the sessions from the festival. In this session, authors Linda Javen and Judith Lanigan discuss turning research into thrilling fiction. Right. Um, we're at the, the, the close end of um, the festival now, and it's a terrific session, this one. I've actually had the privilege of chairing a couple of panels over the past 12 months on this sort of topic, um, and it's a very, very difficult topic. Um, in as much as these hard-working authors up here have slaved and slaved and slaved to get to the finished book that you see before, before you on the table here. Um, one of the things that uh, people take for granted is that while they might like research and you can research and research and research a novel, you could spend 30 years you know, researching for the novel that you actually never get to write, um, there are a whole lot of criteria that, that, that are worth considering when you are doing this sort of research. And um, I'm sure that we'll be uh, informed and well-informed from both Judith and, and Linda how they went about it. But what they've done is even more than that because it's not researching for a thesis, it's not researching for a non-fiction book, it's actually creating worlds and creating people from historical documents and, and I think that's, that's a real challenge and uh, we'll get to learn more about that um, as we proceed through the session. Now firstly I'd like to um, introduce Linda, Linda Javen who's um, an extraordinary, extraordinarily prolific writer in both fiction and non-fiction which is unusual in this country. Um, I've had the lucky um, the, the lucky fortune of actually working with Linda on previous books um, in, in years past, both fiction and non-fiction. And um, some of you may know her as the author of the, the massive bestseller Eat Me, which was an erotic novel that was published some years ago. Um, and almost single-headedly spearheaded chiclet, I think, and certainly erotic fiction in this country as a market. But before that, Linda was a... Uh, was a journalist and a writer and a Sinophile. Um, she speaks she speaks Chinese Mandarin, isn't it? Not Cantonese. She's a little Cantonese. And has lived in China for many years and um, has thoroughly steeped herself in that culture. So she she has this extraordinary range of experience and all of that of course is very germane to her book um, a Most Immoral Woman, which you'll be talking about. But in addition to Eat Me, she's also written about at least half a dozen other books that, that, that I won't list, but um, a very experienced writer and, as you will hear later from her readings, writing wonderfully in the voice of sort of the Fienda Sekler. Linda Javen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I suppose I am. Okay. Um, uh, the, a Most Immoral Woman um, um, is a, a novel based on a true story. The true story is about the meeting of the very, very famous Australian journalist, George Morrison, who was correspondent for the Times of London uh, in Beijing between 18... Peking, really, at that time, 1897 um, and around 1910 when he actually, or 12, when he quit to become an advisor to the Chinese government. Now, Morrison was this really larger-than-life character. When he was young, he walked, when he was about 18, he walked from Melbourne to Adelaide. He retraced Burke and Will's footsteps when he was 
2021 years after they tried to go the same way and died. He was a real adventurer. He did. He was a very big alpha male. He was very invested in the whole imperial project, um, Britannia's bringing civilization to the world. Um, he very much believed that. He was born in the colony of Victoria in Geelong. Um, he was very, very keen on all of this. So in 1904, we find him in, in Peking. He's um, survived the Boxer Rebellion, the siege of the foreign legations, and come out a hero. Um, he's very much respected as the absolute person to go to on Chinese politics and everything else. He's a little bit annoyed at the way that Russia is creeping down the northeast of China. He believes he knows best for China, um, and he's also concerned about the the imbalance of foreign powers in China because Britain needs to keep its hold uh, in China vis-a-vis -vis France and Italy and Russia and Japan. Now, he encouraged Japan to fight Russia out of the northeast of China, which actually set the stage for the later J Japanese invasion of Manchuria and everything else. Um, his agitation for the what became the Russo-Japanese War and was actually originally called Morrison's War this all happened, um, the war started, and he suddenly found himself a little bit bored. Along comes, and this is all true, a 26, he was 42, a 26-year-old American heiress who was, as everybody says, a nymphomaniac. Um, she certainly gave every evidence of it. Uh, she loved um, sleeping with everybody she met, almost literally. Like she seemed to rack up such an incredible list, uh, not so many notches on her bedside that I think um, she would make Paris Hilton proud. You know, she was absolutely <laughs> a... <laughs> I kept thinking of Paris Hilton when I was writing this. Anyway, so there's Morrison in May. He starts this wild affair with her, and it begins at the, at the, where the Great Wall meets the sea um, in Shanghai Guan or Mountain Sea Pass. It starts on top of the Great Wall on a February night, if you can imagine that. I'm not quite sure how they did what they did. But um, it became this wild, passionate affair, which she conducted simultaneously with affairs that she was having with Morrison's other friends. Um, and she told him all about these in detail. Now... I thought this is a fantastic story. The alpha male who becomes obsessed, jealous, but cannot let go of this woman who is completely free. Also, a man who is quick to judge women's morality. He called her the most immoral woman he'd ever met, while never once thinking about the fact that he'd started one of the world's greatest conflicts or helped to start one of the world's greatest conflicts, resulting in massive devastation, destruction, and death. Um, never once in his diaries does he give any indication that that had any moral dimension. So that's how I kind of came into this story. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a rollicking um, um, tale. But I had two very different challenges in front of me. One was how to bring Morrison to life. Morrison, who is extremely well documented, first of all by himself. He was a complete journal keeper. He kept a journal every single day, nearly of his entire life. Um, and so we have evidence of everything he did. You know, I, he was a very industrious reporter um, and a very industrious uh, pursuer of women. Um, and we get all of those little details in his journal. 
um, the Mitchell Library in New South Wales keeps all of his journals, all of his letters. Banjo Patterson met him and wrote a long thing about Morrison, the way he spoke. Like he actually replicated a conversation. We've got so much material on Morrison. He's a subject of biographies, very, very well known. So on the one hand, I've got this protagonist who's extremely well known. Um, on the other hand, I've got a woman, and I'll be talking a little bit more about this later when we start talking about how we do the research, who was unknown except for the fact that she slept with Morrison. She was known to many people, um, but she did not leave much of a record, and really history would not have noticed her if Morrison hadn't recorded this episode and his biographers hadn't put this episode into their biographies. Um, I was reading one of those biographies that inspired this book. Um, so I had these very, very different challenges, somebody who nobody knew about and somebody who you could know about an awful lot. Um, and I'll talk about more of that um, later. Should I read now or read later? Do you no, think? I, think, I think we'd like to hear something from okay. the book. Um, I'll, I'll give you two little um, excerpts here, um, which I think reflect some of the aspects of the research. Um, this is when Morrison first meets May. Uh, he's come into this hotel in Mountain Sea Pass. Uh, it's 1904, it's a February, um, and he's come looking for information about the war, hasn't found much. He goes into the dining room. All he wants to do is have a meal and go to sleep. Comes into the dining room, okay. As the maitre d' busied himself accommodating a large and fussy party, party of German engineers, Morrison looked around with mild curiosity and low expectations. The room hummed with polyglot conversation, punctuated by the clink of silver on porcelain. A warm fug of wood fire with notes of roast meat and, f and port filled his nostrils. At linen-covered tables set in the Western manor were seated missionaries, military attachés, railway men, traders in arms and supplies, dull men and their bony wives, the usual crowd, with one heart-stopping exception. Now here, Morrison thought, is excitement. Seated at one of the tables was a young woman of exceptional allure whose eyes flashed with both mischief and promise and whose style suggested that she had just stepped off Fifth Avenue or the Champs-Élysées, not some dusty street in North China. Morrison didn't know enough of couture to, rec of couture, couture, <laughs> to recognize that her outfit was a confection of worths of Paris, but it did not take a student of the fashion plate to observe how stylish were the lines of her dress, how rich were its fabrics, and how eloquently they hugged her curvaceous body. Similarly, Morrison was mesmerized by the glitter and grace of her lively hands, despite it being lost on him that her rings were fabricated by Lalique. She radiated sex and money. He was drawn, sailor to siren, moth to flame. Tearing his eyes off her, he turned to Dumas, his friend. Who is this, he whispered, each syllable a compendium of wonder. Dumas stroked his mustache and bit his lip. This, he stated, is trouble. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. <laughs> well, we'll learn more about Maisie in a moment, I'm sure. Um, I'd like to ask Judith to, to um, give us some idea of her book as well. Um, this was all new to me, I'm afraid. I, I, I was a bit slow on the uptake about um, the importance of hula hoops. Um, there's been a resurgence in them. Um, Judith's an international street theatre artist and circus artist, and this, she, she told me in the green room, was her, her first book. She's since finished her third. So um, quite prolific indeed in, in, in that regard. Um, and it's, it's an extraordinary um, mosaic of 
many different things, this book, but I'll um, like you to welcome Judith and she can tell us a little bit more about the book. I called it A True History of the Hula Hoop because, you know, I think there's always very many histories to something. It's one of, the, you know, it's not the true history, um, as, a, you know, in, in relation to my story. I, uh, I started the book... I actually started the book as a result of research uh, for a performance project. I was creating a new solo show. I'm, I'm trained in you know, circus. My speciality is the hula hoop. It's a Russian speciality. And, uh, and in the art of the modern clown, which is quite different to the traditional circus clown with the white face, the red nose and the big shoes. Um, the modern clown is, is, uh, is, is basically a study of madness and delusion and then the exhibition of that for people's entertainment. That's, you know, a quick explanation of it. And um, I was in the position where I needed to, to create a new show and I thought I'd just have a look at uh, the history of that. And um, there are not a lot of female clowns. And so my research took me back to the Commedia dell'arte of 16th century Italy. And at the time, there was a time when women on stage had been banned by the church for 13 centuries. And so this is where... Uh, female clowns first stepped onto the stage and in the introduction to a book on Commedia dell'arte I found the sentence explaining that in 1572 a company of clowns were kidnapped on their way to perform for the King of France and they were held ransom in a chateau south of Lyon and, um, and the kidnappers demanded that the King of France release a thousand Huguenots who were, there, who were being held waiting to be burnt. And the King of France did that. And I just thought that was fascinating. The idea that someone doing my sort of work, however long ago, that held such importance, you know, six clowns to be exchanged for a thousand political prisoners. And that led me off onto this whole period, you know, a whole further research. I, I, wrote a, I wrote a treatment of the story first, and that was optioned as for feature film. And, uh, and then I started... At the age of 40, uh, I, got, I had this gig, a series of gigs where all of a sudden I was working in burlesque and I didn't understand why that was. So I, I'm sort of digressing a little bit. I, I created the sol this solo show in which I performed a ballet divertissement called The Dying Swan, which Anna Pavlova toured here in Australia in 1910 was originally choreographed by Michelle Fokine. I did it with hula hoops because I thought, oh, hula hoops and tragedy, that would be interesting. So I had various streams of writing going on and um, the strand of modern story uh, started off with the confession that when people ask me what I do, I normally lie. I I'm quite often in taxi. I've been on a plane for 30 hours. The taxi driver looks at my hula hoops and goes, what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm a secretary. I'm too tired to... If you say I'm a circus artist, they go, and, you know, there's a whole series of questions. I, I had the fortune to discuss um, these small snippets of manuscript I was working on with um, Peter Bishop of the Varuna Award, which is a, a um, award for unpublished authors, and he said that's it's really interesting, you know, this this um, uh, this this confession that when people ask you what you do, you lie. This is your chance to answer all those questions in narrative form. So I started approaching the manuscript like that, and for me, my work started to embody this this history of clown as well, the story of Columbina and the and the Commedia dell'arte. Um, gave me a sense of my place in the world of performance and, and the Columbina of Commedia dell'arte in performance terms is my great-great-great-great-grandmother 
not in human terms, but in, in the performance archetype. And uh, so I ended up cutting all this together into you know, these three strands of story together and, um, and got a little bit fascinated with the history of the hula hoop. People kept coming up to me after shows and saying, oh, how great that the Americans invented this toy. And I went, I don't think anyone invented it. And I, and I definitely don't think it was American. It was a that was a commercial development, a clever marketing twist. And um, it took me about six years of research and, and, to, and tracing the evolution of the hula hoop. And I accidentally discovered one day, I came across um, a woman who mentioned that when she was at school in uh, 1955 that she had played with cane hoops in a school in Mackay. That sent me off on another search, and I and then I eventually found that in fact the hula hoop was first commercially produced in Australia by a company called Toll Toys. Does anyone know Toll Toys? Yes, yeah, Toll Toys produced the first hula hoop. Um, Alex Tolmer, the founder of Toll Toys, took the hula hoop to an American toy fair, in, in international toy toy fair, and the uh, Whammo, the American company, thought it was a great idea. They took the idea back to America and they mass-produced them, named it the Hula Hoop, which was good marketing, and sold two million hoops in two, we in two months. Tolmers protested. I don't mean to give away, this, you know, I mean, but this is such a small fraction of story, but I, I find it's really a really important detail and I love discussing it. Um, Alex Tolmer was a philanthropist and uh, so he had no protection of intellectual copyright, so he negotiated with, with uh, Whammo that they should at least contribute something and he um, negotiated with them that they pay for a charity bed in the Royal Sydney Children's Hospital with the proceeds of the hula hoop and that, that lasted for a number of years. So for disadvantaged children needing treatment, there was a bed paid for by the hula hoop which I thought was fantastic. So the, the book jumps around a lot. It's very hard to define in one sentence. It, I gave, I created a narrative which, in which I gave a character some of my experiences as an international circus soloist, and I tried to present a realistic picture of that that doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily glamorise it. That does point out, you know, I spend you spend a lot of time carrying your luggage, and uh, and it's a chaotic life. It's an unconventional life, and there are consequences. And um, and I gave the character my act because there were some experiences that I had that would not be the same in, in telling it without, you know, like it's like um, uh, performing the dying swan with hula hoops in the pouring rain in a piazza in Italy around the fountain and it's, and it's beautiful because, you know, you're being the swan and it's absurd and, and um, you know, if you create that with another act, then it's not the same. And then at the same time, it, when I started, embarked on this, I found in, in a newspaper a reference to a, a crime committed in the GPO in Rome where they could see that someone had got away from the GPO with millions and millions and millions of lira, but they couldn't see how the criminal had got into the GPO. And it wasn't for a, for a couple of weeks until the culprit confessed, actually bragged to his friends that it was him. He was a dwarf. He had had himself packed into a box and posted. <laughs> Once inside the GPO, he got out of the box and then escaped, you know. And it was, would have been a successful robbery except that he had, you know, it's, it's a common thing. Clown 
clowns, clowns are stupid. It's, it's their charm. It's their naivety. And, and it's, it's, he's actually one of my favourite characters. He travels with the, uh, with the company of clowns. He's in, he's, they're working under the patronage of the Duke of Ferrara, the family d'Est, and um, his sweetheart, as is common in the time, um, dwarves were given as presents. His sweetheart Rosita has been given to another family and uh, he has come up with a desperate plan. And uh, he, he's, in, he's hidden away in this box and he's, he writes letters to her throughout the whole journey because he can't post them because he's in this box. Rosita, my dearest love, I have heard while hidden under a table this very night that the company of clowns is invited to Paris by the King of France to play at the wedding of his sister. I have thought up a clever plan by which I will accompany them packed into a box and travelling incognito as a present, making my way thus unseen into the chamber in the French palace where all the presents will be. It is a royal wedding and there are sure to be many gifts of rich jewels and other valuable objects. Once arrived in the dead of night, I shall unpack myself and steal away with as much as I can carry. I have had very big pockets made into my pantaloons, but this is to be a great secret between you and me. Do not worry if you have no word from me who is your truest love and does this clever deed to make our lives together away from the courts where we must be fools, strange and at the mercy of others' decision. The wedding is not until St. Bartholomew's Day and I will come away and take you away to our new life. I will keep the thought of you in my heart. Yours most affectionately, Gianello. And, you know, some terrible things happened to Gianello while he's in the box, but I won't go into that right now because <laughs> we're talking about research. Okay, we've sort of set the scene a little bit here, which is great, and um, I'm so glad Judith explained the book because it is <laughs> quite, the, the, quite the sum of its parts and, the, and there are quite a, quite a lot of parts in there, but it's, it's highly entertaining. Um, I want to go back to you, Linda, because I, I sort of want to know that precipice that you sort of jump off when you decide that you want to write this book and, and, and what prompted that. You did mention that you were reading a biography of Morrison. Was that, was that the, the signal or was it...? Well, what it was is I, I've always been interested in Morrison because having had a long history of um, contact with... Ch I, I first went to um, Taiwan in, in 77. I was at nine years in Taiwan, Hong Kong and, and Beijing. And, uh, you know, I speak Chinese, and it's, it's really a big part of my life. Of course, as, and I also have been a foreign correspondent in China. So ah. with all... Yeah, did oh, you know that? No. Oh, right. Yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I interviewed people while hula hooping. Right? <laughs> How dare you? I, we'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> I need some lessons from Judith first. Um, yeah, so I... Morrison is this, he's, he's legendary. Everyone who goes to China, I mean, even among Chinese, there's been documentaries made about him on Chinese central TV. Uh, Wang Fujing, one of the central streets in Beijing, was called for a long time in the 20s and 30s in English, Morrison Street. You know, he's a very, very big character. So he's always been in the back of my head, and he's fascinating because he's really bitchy. He's really, really, um, he, he would 
famously bitchy. He would write in his diary about people who he would socialize with that they were insipid sleeve dogs or they were dull, dull, dull beyond belief, you know, and this sort of thing. He was terrible. Um, and he, yet he would dine with the same people night after night, such was expatriate society and probably still is. Um, and so here is this guy who also is very alpha, very concerned with his status. And so I had him in my mind as somebody who would be an interesting character, but I wasn't really thinking about him much. And then I read Robert Macklin's biography. Um, I was reviewing it for The Age. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I did a session with him this morning. Some of you might have been there. Um, so we had this... Uh, I was reading his biography, and suddenly I came upon these three pages. I'm thinking, as I'm reading the biography, I'm going, yes, I love Morrison. He's mad. He's fantastic. He's such a hypocrite. He's such, a, he's such an interesting, complex character, really big and yet really vulnerable. And I come upon this description of this affair he had with this American heiress and how she completely undid him. And then there were some details about her, you know, about... The, you know, uh, Linton Tedford was the most formidable fornicator she had ever met. And, you know, she masturbated every day. She was used to playing with herself every day. This is Morrison writing in his diary after a session with her. Used to playing with herself every day, even when ill or after having had a man. So, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is, this is wild. And I began thinking about them, and that's how this came about. Of course, I had to find out as much as I could about her as well. But... That was the inspiration. It was actually having this in the back of my mind for many years, that there's this wonderful f person who could be a character, and then suddenly finding the story. It just so, lit up so in my brain. So it's three pages in yeah. this book it and with up. these two people connecting, and you just thought, wow, there's really yes. something here. I thought, here is this woman who has undone this fantastically interesting man, and she has undone him in the most extraordinary way. He became totally obsessed. He, he, would, he would be so gripped with jealousy because she would tell him that Martin, oh, Martin Egan had me for four times in two hours, and oh, you know Chester Holcomb, the other day he had me for days on, uh, he had me for days on end in Shanghai, and she would just go on and on and on, and she even had sex with these really vile people who he'd found completely detestable, rum-soaked, you know, blah, blah, blah. So she, he, he would write anguish gripping my vitals. <laughs> <laughs> jealousy you know he, he would write all this stuff and I thought wow what was this relationship how did that work how did this man and I realized two things well the most important thing was he liked to have this he was very concerned with his social place and he came from school teacher his father was the founder of Geelong College in, in Geelong and so he came from that kind of basically poor, humble origins, but, mm. you know, respectable. And she comes from fabulous wealth. Um, and there's this kind of fascination that he's always had with wealth and status. And at the same time, he, concerned with his status, doesn't actually reveal, except to his diary, some of the naughtier goings-on in his life and the bitchiness and all of this stuff, where she's completely honest. She just tells everybody who she's been fucking, not to put a pi fine pine... Uh, pine point on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I'm thinking, here is this incredibly honest woman who doesn't care about status, but has this wealth and status. And here's this man who's desperate for it, and who wants to be seen as honest and upright, but can't help but being kind of two-faced. And he's drawn to her, I think partly because of her essential honesty, as well as her other assets, which were... 
considerable. Well, she certainly was a voluptuous woman by, by the sounds of it. But it, also voluptuous in the sense of pleasure-loving. Well, a complete hedonist by all accounts. Um, but she, I mean, she, she didn't seem to display any intellectual curiosity. She was, um, she was a woman who was very much someone who wanted to embroil themselves in sensual pleasures. Um, it, it, it's interesting because she, she's in China and then she's sort of shipped out, isn't she, from America? Like, get her out of here. I she's made trouble. That up. You made that yes. up. Okay. It, yeah. Well, I'd like I'd like the, the the point of view for the most part of the book is from Morrison, and he's quite a bore actually. Um, he's ridiculously egotistical and um, and thinks little of pretty much everyone around him. So, you, in some ways, the fact that he has something of a comeuppance, um, you, there's a certain amount of Schadenfreude, you know, as the reader that that happens. But um, I'd like to just turn a little bit to Maisie. And the cover, which you probably can't see terribly well, actually is Maisie, isn't it? Well, we don't know. There's a lot of mysteries. <laughs> see, this is the interesting thing, isn't it, about research? I'll tell you what happened with Maisie. This is quite interesting. I thought, who is this woman? All we know about her is what Morrison recorded in his diary. The masturbation habits, the most formidable fornicator, how many times Martin Egan had her, all this sort of stuff. And... So I went back into his diaries, first of all, and found all the references. But still, who is this woman? So I started Googling until I found um, genealogies. And I knew that her father was uh, a senator. So very quickly, I pegged her father as George Clement Perkins, former governor of California, Republican senator. Now, at this point, I went looking for his stuff and, um, because there was nothing on her. And I started looking for him, and I find out through the congressional archives in the United States that his personal papers are kept in, in the California State Historical Library. So I got in touch with them. They gave me a complete index of the papers, um, and they had tantalizing titles like, you know, um, correspondence regarding his children and that sort of thing. And, but they, they then, uh, I had to hire a researcher who poured through all of this, and she really got what I was doing. And later I went to Oakland, where she was from, very posh at the time, the Brooklyn, as they said, the Brooklyn of, of San Francisco, um, of the West Coast. Uh, and uh, what we found there was this, only two letters in her own hand, juvenile letters to girlfriends saying, if I ever said I would be your best friend forever and ever, I'd take that back and I want my dress and where's that diamond ring I lent you, sort of thing, like really short kind of dep, 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 very valley girl. And, um, and then the other thing, but was what was really rich, two things. One were her parents' letters to each other and the, the schoolmistress's letters to the parents and the parents of the schoolmistress about this daughter of ours, you know, um. this... That what are we going to do? And the schoolmistress, like, she's bright. If she applied herself, she'd be brilliant. She'd be great. But she goes off. She's man crazy. She's, you know, she would, she never stayed at school over the weekend. She'd always sneak into town. I mean, she was just uncontrollable. But everyone loved her. And the school, school mistress is like, everyone loves her. And you get these beautiful letters about I mean, older women who knew her, her, her three times fiance's mother loved her. Everybody loved May. She had obviously huge charisma. She was enchanting. And then the best thing, the gold, a stack of letters like this from different men, boys, you know, Maisie, 
if I don't see you this weekend, kiss yourself a thousand times for me. Maisie, I'm down here in the mine in South America, running this mine, and I'm lying naked in my hammock thinking about you. Burn this letter, please, you know. <laughs> Maisie, stop writing on postals. You know, because obviously she was writing naughty things that would get exposed to other people's, you know... Uh, Not in envelopes. Yes, yeah. and, 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 and letters, you know, letters like um, that ride we had on, on Saturday, because they used to go riding with the storm sides up in buggies. That was the sort of, if this buggy is a rockin', don't come a knockin', you know. Um, they would just, <laughs> they'd just go riding around and around. The ride I had with you on Saturday was unforgettable. I understand you're going to be riding with so-and-so next Saturday. He'll show you that thing of his, you know, or something. I was just like, oh, my God. It was just fascinating. Now, she also had a couple of photographs. There were photographs. They took kind of glamour photographs um, often. Uh, girls would go and they get all dolled up and they'd take these very pretty photographs of themselves in studios and pass them around to each other, gestures of friendship, and also obviously give them to boyfriends. But... Um, there were these ones and they would be like, to darling Maisie, love Harriet, you know. But then this one, this one that's on the cover, this sexy, absolute bedroom-eyed, um, take-me-now um, beauty, uh, she was unlabeled. And I just decided, I looked at her, I, the only thing I have of Maisie's, absolutely, that's her photograph from those files. She's 11 years old and she's about this big and really blurry if you try to blow her up. It's, an, it's a sixth grade photograph. And then I've got a photograph of her sister, Pansy, who has a similar facial structure to this person. And I looked at the three and I went, I don't care, this is Maisie. This, this is an interesting thing that we were talking in the green room before we came out because I asked Judith about... The um, I'm, I'm not going to get the Italian right. I'm sorry. I'm really not very good at Italian. Commedia dell'arte. That's what I was yeah. after. Um, Which actually means it's 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 the title of a, a professional union. So it's it's the artists of comedy, and they were professional. They had to be of a certain standard. They were big on improvisation too, I believe. Is that right? Uh, well, actually, what the, the way that they, they they worked is that they they worked within um, archetypes. Alecchino, Colombina, Il Dottore, Pantalone, and um, each of those had a mask, except for Colombina and Alecchino and the lovers. And what they had was they had Lazzi. Lazzi was um, a framework of interaction between the clowns. There were set scenarios in which the clowns could start from, so it meant that you could, you could bring in someone else to play Alecchino, but he knew what his relationship was to Colombina, to Il Dottore. Colombina was eternally caught in this, um, in in an ill-fated love affair with with Alecchino. Alecchino was 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 a liar. Alecchino was the one that would never. You'd give him a message to to deliver, it would never arrive. So and there was a, this. So they had these endless relationships, and that they were Lazi. So they, there was no script. That could, that could be improvised, but there was always set frameworks, set relationships, set masks. Your Columbina doesn't seem terribly impressed with her lover, though. She's, it's ill-fated. They will never, Columbina and Alecchino will never find a stable relationship. It, that is their status together. It's actually a, a three, core, you know, it's a triangle of relationship because uh, Columbina loves Alecchino um, Piero, Pedrolino, loves Colombina, 
So, so I hope you're all getting this because I'm oh, confused. There's people nodding. Yeah, there's I, quite a lot of triangles here, I think. You know, like, uh, he loves her, but she loves him. Yeah. She'd probably be, be happy, you know, it's like, you know, which one do you go for, the nice, sweet guy? Or the interesting, the interesting, unreliable, untrustworthy person? You know, it's that sort of framework, so that they're never going to be together. Alakino is eternally distracted by another woman, you know, for example. Yeah. Oh, I thought if it was going to be Sydney, he would be in love with him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a very Sydney joke, that one, isn't it? Um, okay. Um, so when you were doing, when you were writing that part of the story, and, and even with um, Girondello, is it Girondello the Dwarf? Girondello the Dwarf. Thank yeah, you. We'll just call him, we can just call him the Dwarf, oh, if well, you like, that's easier. We can call him Geo, can't we? I'd, prefer, yeah. I'd feel okay. more comfortable if we called him Geo. Yeah. Um, when we were in the, in the green room, sorry, before... Um, we were talking about Linda's fictive techniques uh, and because that's part of this discussion as well is, is, is researching and then actually changing it, making these characters um, come to life and, and creating that, that backstory. And we'll get back to Maisie in a moment about that because you had to do that all from secondary sources in effect, in, in effect rather than the first, the, the, the originator of um, who was May. Um, but we were talking, Judith, and you were saying how you would never... You didn't want to create or put words in people's mouths, but it was okay to do it with these guys because they were actually archetypes. Yes. So, for example, actually the very the first most famous Columbina. So that this is a role that is created. There is always a Columbina. Um, she was first played by a woman called Isabella Andreini, who was a woman of literature. She was a poet. You know, I, I guess I, I came from this uneducated point of view where, I, where women didn't read and write at that point, where you go, oh, no, actually, they, they did. They, they were poets. Um, uh, she, she, <clears throat> she was, she's quite a famous character when you research her. And I, I feel myself uncomfortable as a new writer uh, putting dialogue in the mouths of real people. I would not like that done to me in the future. Where someone goes, oh, Judith Lanigan, she was an interesting character. Let, let's write a book about her and we'll put her in a situation where she said this. And so you think even though these characters which were our archetypes, archetypes. rather than real, real, real people, yeah. 500 years ago, well, not quite actually, is it? Yes, it is almost, isn't it, 500 years ago? You still would feel uncomfortable with that even though... I don't have enough source material. Um, Perhaps after I had been writing more, you know, perhaps when I'd got to my, my ninth book or something, I might feel comfortable about that. I might feel confident in my skills and I might I have a greater understanding of the techniques that are appropriate. It's really easy to put a foot wrong in these situations. And so I, 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 I personally feel uncomfortable. Which is a, a very interesting point too. It's that whole degree of comfort and, and even though you're pushing yourself in the writing of a book, obviously... Um, yeah, and you I have, you I have to feel comfortable with your material <coughs> that you're working with. Yeah, Being, I felt I was already stepping, you know, I was pushing my, my personal <laughs> skill limits, you know, beyond there. You know, I was going from physical performance where I could be, I could be as silly as I wanted to because I had the skills to back it up. You know, as a performer in my genre, I'm in the top ten in the world. I have the skills. I can be as silly as I like. I come up with this firm foundation behind that. But as a writer... You know, I didn't finish high school. As a writer, she's very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, Linda, just just getting back to Maisie for a moment. So, with with the 
the letters, the the gift that you that that you unearthed. Um, were you despondent before you actually came across that? I mean, did you think, what am I going to do now? I, I've got nowhere to go. I've, I've reached a dead end. I don't have a story. Well, I didn't think I didn't have a story, but I was wondering how much I would have to just come from, just come from Morrison's description and have nothing else to go on. When I read those letters, I got a very clear picture of her from the eyes of many different men, and that was really, really useful. I'd also been reading in the mores of the time, so I... I had one of the things I do for this book. I had about a stack of notebooks, each on a different subject. And this is the Maisie notebook. And so among the things I did around the subject of her is I have um, things on how you cure nymphomania um, at the time, which was rather rather grim. They did clitorectomies, actually. Um, Would you show them the pages, for the, the audience, yeah, the yeah, pages? Because they're just stunning. Book. It's, um, here's a menu that I found in her um, things. I, I, used, I was given by my research assistant in California Victoriana stickers, so I used them. I've got pictures of her father, pictures of another lover. I've got excerpts from letters, um, but I also have things like um, how, how contraception was in those days um, and... Uh, the idea of being a single woman and how the, because she didn't marry until much much later um so what was that how was that looked at uh nymphomania um how women at that you know a way to dress your hair you know how you washed your hair and how you crimped it um all of that kind of research women in education so she was given this amazing opportunity to be educated that other women would have died for um and she just frittered it away really um it helped me to build her up this way, you know, and I just had to take a leap in terms of the way she spoke. But with Morrison, um, the Mitchell Library, which owns the moral rights to all of his letters and diaries, they, I spoke to them, and they actually gave me the right to create, I know I'm jumping back to Morrison here, but with Maisie, she was a blank slate. Mm. So I was able to go in any direction I wanted to, and I thought I wanted to emphasize her essential honesty and make it part of her backbone. You know, I don't care what you think. I don't care. I'm used to creating scandal. So what? I'm enjoying myself. So I, I don't know that she was actually that sturdy. Well, I found it interesting but, at the end of the book, and I don't think this is a spoiler, uh, and you did mention that she she actually does marry, and I I thought, mm, boy, poor man. <laughs> I mean, what's going to happen there? It's all going to end in disaster. I know. I mean, we don't know much, you know, about her later and on. And she didn't have children because she no. was rendered sterile. We possibly? don't know, right? But uh, it's it's possible because uh, both contraception and I mean, she did have abortions. We do know that she did have abortions and miscarriages and things. And um, so in those days, it would have been incredibly cute crude the french cures um were really brutal well you yeah. you you talk about um that the, there are condoms or, or, or skins being used um in in the course of the book but i would imagine for a woman um she would have been quite likely to have caught some sort of um, std yes it would be really really likely <clears throat> to have to have caught something because she was so promiscuous it was, re you know, gonorrhea, syphilis, all of these things were really, really common. Um, mm. So perhaps she didn't have children for that reason. Um, it's very, very hard to say. Um, Did we you just find any know. note of hair loss? Where no, you know, no, no. She, she apparently had beautiful fair hair right. at 26, so I don't know. But, but Morrison's diaries um, talked about 
And this is before he meets her, so he independently. I mean, if she didn't have an STD before she met Morrison. I mean, I'm very affectionate <laughs> towards Morrison. I, I know that Melanie's a little bit... It's a bacchanalia you know, in Peking a- <laughs> at this time, I think. Well, I found this. Uh, he was prescribing him. He was also a trained doctor as well as a journalist. And he was prescribing himself so many things of codicil. It was very odd. I'm looking all this stuff up looking up what he's prescribing, and he had a slight induration of the left, um, oh, what was it called, gnocchus or something, it's, you know, whatever it was, and I looked it up and it was like, yep, he's got gonorrhea. <laughs> so, it, yeah. I'm sure that sort of thing was quite common. The, one, of the, one of the terrific things about the book for me when I was reading it is, is the, the tone and style that you've adopted there. And it, it, it has a restraint and it has... It has a lilting quality too because clearly Morrison is very proud of his ability to put words down on a page and um, in your appropriation of, of that, there's some lovely touches, very quaint. Um, and despite all this frenzied, active sex, it's, 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 it's very delicately done. So there's, the, you know, there's no really hot, sweaty rutting going on um well there it, is but well there is but <laughs> you have it, to it's, use your imagination it's not recorded as such so that there is this wonderfully edwardian or victorian you know sort of uh way of just glossing over that stuff with, with the exception of the the attachments that they form um and the um the concerns that morrison has being cuckolded so so frequently and so liberally and with such disgusting sort of competition he you know he really feels that the competition is quite um grotesque and indeed you've you've done well in uh painting that picture um <laughs> there are some scenes where you think no she couldn't she couldn't have she couldn't have had a libido that considerable i i don't to i couldn't into account cd jamison yes some of these grow they really are hideous men um and hideous in the extreme not just physically but 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 their temperaments and their appetites and and all the rest of it but I I can't I don't know it'd be interesting I'd be very keen to know um, if there are any women in the audience who can actually uh, completely come across to that because I can't quite get my head around. It was that. hard for me to for me to get that either, but I thought it was an important part of her character, and I gave her the um, that sort of mercy thing, you know. So there were a couple of men that she did. Because it's easy to do and it was nice to do for them. It was just a gift. Well, she gave you know. a couple of blowjobs, I think, didn't she? Oh, yes, yeah. yes, at least. Yeah. Yes. She also did some um, with the Reverend Nisbet. Oh, I shouldn't give that away. Yeah. Um, but, yes. <laughs> She's very egalitarian in that regard. <laughs> um, okay, okay, so you, you, you found that Maisie's honesty was, was her real strength and her real quality. And, and, and that's almost diametrically opposed to Morrison's toadying or, or utter sense of decency but in, in a very English uh, 19th century fashion where it's, it's quite hypocritical, hypocritical, hypocritical I'm sorry, um, and, and that's touched on several times through the book with their exchanges, isn't it? Um, the, the affair itself, you knew how long that lasted because in the book it's on again, off again, on again, off again and, and we get a sense of the, the, the tumult that Morrison is going through because of the on again, off again nature of it. Um, did, you, did you discover how long it actually did last? Exactly as it is in the book. The thing that I changed um, in terms of 
they were constantly, this is mainly taking place in China and a bit in Japan, and they were on so many boats and trains, um, and they would meet in Tianjin, then they would meet in Chufu, then they would meet in Weihaiwei, then it would be Shanghai, then they'd be back here in Tianjin, then they'd be over in Yokohama. It was just insane. At one point, there was so much going back and forth over a period of two weeks, and they'd be on boats together, and, and I had whole boat scenes, and my editor looked at it, and she said, you're spending all your time getting them on and off trains and boats. She said, can you just stick them in Shanghai for a week <laughs> and let them get on with it and we'll build the you know emotional stuff and I said yeah that's a good idea and so there were there a little bit of there's a little bit of convenience like that uh, where I've gone yeah okay let's just put them in Shanghai and let them get on with you know some sort of emotional a, a, a development in the relationship that needed to happen without all the distractions um, but yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was exactly the length of time. The starting point in the book and the ending point are exactly right. And um, he, at the end of the year, he would sum up in his diary various things that happened during the year. And so some of the stuff that I've got has taken from the diary entries by day by day, and some of it comes from his summary at the end of the year. But if I can just very... Do you mind if I just really quickly just read one line... Um, one little paragraph here, which is, this just shows how I used his stuff, because the Mitchell Library gave me permission to use the words of his journal in speech, in thought, as journal entries. I had a lot of freedom in talking about creating mm. this thing. I was going to say, you, you can, this, I was really lucky. You yeah. know, I was really lucky because Morrison gave me a lot of his words, yes. enough so that I could continue. So yes. this, is, this is actually... And I, I really felt that in reading that book, um, I really felt that there there was no point at which I felt that I needed to suspend disbelief or, you know, I felt very in, in place and I, I felt a real sense, strong sense of the voices of the character. Which is how I felt reading your book. I mean, it was a very strong, it was, you know, such a vivid picture of this world. Um, but I think you can be braver with the... Um with the dialogue in the future. I mean, I, I, but what I wanted to say is that I really had that gift from yes, the... Yes, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and there's just a... I'm a man of restricted means and poor health, he says to his friend before meeting May. The only maidens who ever show any fondness for me are elderly rejects with yearnings and false teeth. The, <laughs> the sort who suffer from indigestion and clammy hands and feet. <laughs> Charming, isn't it? Um, <laughs> But that, that, I couldn't have made that up. I wouldn't have felt, I wouldn't have felt able to, yes. To, so yes. I understand exactly what Judith is saying because I could not have made that line up. I would not have dared go there. Yeah, yeah, good, okay. Mm. Actually, Judith, I'd really like um, you to read us a little bit on page 48 because this was oh. revelatory for me. Um, page 48. 48. And this is in the voice of Catherine, or this is about Catherine, who's the contemporary character that's, ah, that's yep. based on Judith. And it's about, well, I'll let Judith explain, from, with the teacher. So, so Catherine mm. is um, working with the contemporary circus actually in, in Western Australia. And, whoops. And uh, a, 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 clown, a modern clown teacher has been brought into the company to... Um, extend their vocabulary, their, 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 their performance vocabulary. And uh, the teacher comes in, everyone's, everyone's sitting in a row of chairs. 
and uh, the teacher says to them, what is the difference between an actor and a clown? Is that what you're thinking yeah. of? <clears throat> they all sit and think, someone's puts up their hand. An actor is usually told what to do and given a script, but a clown makes it all up. And Catherine's wondering if she can sneak out the door without anyone noticing because she's always been told she's, she's the one that's not funny and she thinks clown is about being funny and that it's about improvising. <clears throat> she's not confident with that. So she's sort of eyeing the door going, yeah, can I, can, can I get out of here without anyone noticing? Uh, but the teacher replies, yes, or to put it more concisely, an actor acts and a clown is. A clown can be given direction, but he, is given, but he has an essential character and characteristics that are part of his very nature. You cannot tell a clown to say this or do that or you'll take away his ability to be funny. You can give a clown a scenario and tell him the general direction in which you want him to go, but he needs to find his own way there because each clown's particular mode of thinking is what creates the moment that touches the audience. So with that, mm. because that to me was incredibly informative without being strictly didactic, and did, did this, this happen to you or is this something? Yeah. So yeah. was there a teacher who actually gave you that key so this becomes much more autobiographical? Look, you know, to be honest, because there's you know, just a few of us here, <laughs> there's, um, pretty much everything that happened to Catherine has happened to me. And lots more stuff's happened to me and it's too confusing and chaotic if I put everything in there and I just had a particular purpose in using experience to illustrate different things. A lot of people don't understand what clown is. The clown is stupid. The clown, a clown doesn't go from A to B. A clown goes from A to M to F to T and then they finally discover themselves at Z and that's, you know, and then they're there. So it's, it's an unusual performance type, but it illustrates our vulnerabilities. And I think in the performance of that, I found that um, it allows us to recognise that even in our stupidities and our mistakes, we are still lovable. Yeah, if there's a real poignancy to that, yeah. Is, is the, the bit about the going out of the door, coming in the door, is that right after that? The door... I, I, I think that's a beautiful section where she, where the where Catherine finds her clownness. Where yeah, she's the the, the teacher makes this um, declaration that you either um, you either sit down or you be funny, and um, I can just imagine the challenge that that is oh. for someone who's performing. Yeah, because you can't clown clown is not logical. As soon as you start being clever or trying to be logical, you are not in the state for which you can give that moment. And um, the, the teacher sets up this, organ, this exercise. Uh, it's very about saying yes, you cannot say no um, because then the game is over and you're off stage and the pleasure, it's all about the pleasure, the pleasure is gone. And Catherine decides she may as well be first and get it over with. Is that what we're talking about? She musters her courage standing outside the door. She musters her courage standing outside the door but when she opens it, and steps back inside to see everyone sitting in a line waiting for her to be funny, bearing in mind that this is, this is like me. I, I, um, I'm, I'm the graceful performer. I, I naturally point my toe. Um, and because I, I do that, the company I was working with, you know, I was told, oh, well, you're not going to be funny. You should be an aerialist. Work on the trees. I originally worked on the trapeze. Um, 
when she steps inside to see everyone sitting in a line waiting for it to be funny, she wants to run and hide. There is nowhere to go except back through the door. So she steps backwards quickly and closes it and she can hear everyone laughing. <laughs> That's funny. That's encouraging. She opens the door and steps back in. Standing in front of everyone, she can feel that her underpants have ridden up a little and remembering the advice to do whatever comes first to mind, which is some paragraphs we've mixed, missed out, uh, she reaches behind her and fiddles them back into place and everyone laughs. I still, I still find everyone laughs when you do that. I don't know what it is. What is it? About <laughs> <laughs> um, she stands for a moment blankly waiting to think of something and she can feel everyone getting restless and the teacher sits back, be funny or sit down. Mm. And she sits gratefully. She's done it. She's got a laugh. She got two. She got two, yeah. It, it seems like you don't have to be clever to make people laugh. You just have to be stupid. Mm. Which is rather Lovely. nice. Thank you for reading that. Um, we've got a quick, quick couple of questions before um, we finish up here today. And uh, both Judith and Linda will be signing books at the tent. Do we have any questions? We yes, must. Yes, I've got one. <laughs> I've got the mic. Oh, tremendously fast. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, your wonderful book, Linda... You talk about her seducing her dentist. Is that a real event or did you make that up? Okay, thank you very much. Um, there was, she told Morrison that she had been seduced in a restaurant, he writes in his diary, in a restaurant called the Hens and Chickens or Poultry or something by a Dr. Jack Fee. That was my sole clue. I went into the San Francisco census. Jack Fee, the Jack Fee I found was a dentist. Okay, considerably older than her. Then I thought, how do you get seduced in a restaurant? And what does that mean? I, my best guess was seduced means lose virginity. Okay. Now, we know she was sexually active about the time she was 15, 16, pretty much. So it would have to be bef just before that. Um, so I then am completely confounded by how you get seduced in a restaurant. Um, I'll keep it very quick. I went through a lot of research. I gave up. Then I was in San Francisco doing more research. I came upon a couple of biographies of wild women of the time, um, some of the famous ones, um, Big Alma in particular. And in this, it mentioned that there was this restaurant called the Poodle Dog. And the Poodle Dog was the place where it had these different levels, family, business, and then real business, lockable from the inside, bedroom, bidet, you know, the, I mean, shower, the whole, you know, bed, everything. Um, I went, oh, my God. And then the poodle dog was actually an Americanization of le poulet, chicken. And I went, bingo. And then I was able to Google up a collector of poodle dog memorabilia. I, <laughs> I found all of the... I found, seriously, it's just insane. I corresponded with him. He's thanked in the acknowledgments. I found other references to this. I put that together and I made up that scene, how it actually worked. What a great question. One more. <laughs> Thank you both. Um, Herodotus has been described as both the father of history and the father of lies. And I was just wondering in your research in the mining, is that working? No, it's gone. In the, oh, there we go. Uh, in the researching um, that you're going through, because um, Herodotus' work is often characterized by digressions. Um, what digressions did you encounter that sort of perhaps either led you to a piece of information or led you away from the story that you were trying to tell? And similarly, what digressions from the truth um, may you have taken, uh, which you might have agonised about or, or whatever? 
Judith, would you like to go first? I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I, because the mic was cutting. Digressions that you've taken away from the material that, that, that you wanted to find and other digressions that, that brought you towards material that you've used. I guess this is sort of about what we were talking about in Green Room about um, the magician. But well, yeah, yeah. What, what to leave out. I suppose what to, what leave, to leave out is a very is big question which we didn't fully Things that fully you find that, 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 that sort of take you away from story and so you don't use them. Yeah, I had this interesting correspondence with um, uh, the pre ex-president of the Brotherhood of Magicians in the United States who, uh, who worked with Lucille Ball and Red Skelton and, and was, was quite a prestigious character. And he commented to me that his experience of the hula hoop was that he was offered the chance to invest in the whammo hula hoop. He decided against it because he'd seen, and I quote him, coloured kids spinning bike rims around their waists in the streets of New York in 1957, and he, um, he felt that if coloured kids were doing it, no white child would. And while I felt that was a very, very telling piece of um, information, that I, I actually, I don't know, I was shocked when he said that, you know, this was in 2005. Um, uh, I, I, I then discovered, um, you know, uh, information that predated that, that gave it a use in Australia in, in 1943 and I decided not to bring that attention, not to bring that discussion of racism or, or bring that attention on this actually this, this quite venerable magician and um, so I left, took that away. And Linda? Um, I had a, a very interesting thing. I, I came upon, I was trying to research the Russo-Japanese War. I came upon a book by um, an Irish academic called... Um, something like um, Lionel James and the Russo... It was Wireless Telegraphy and the Reporting of the Russo-Japanese War. It was like this really extraordinarily, like, <laughs> title. Um, I started reading it, and I had not... I really didn't know what gave Morrison... how Morrison connected with May in Japan. Like, I knew he went there, but I wasn't... There was aspects of why he went to different places and they met up in different places that had been a bit mysterious to me. It wasn't really clear. I read this book and I discovered this guy, Lionel James, who had not been in my story at all. And I got incredibly obsessed with wireless telegraphy and its um, significance for war correspondence. I went off on a whole <laughs> journey. And then I came back and I went, oh my God, Lionel James, I put all dates together, I put things together. Lionel James is actually the glue. He's the person who gives a lot of excuses for the two of them to get together by having emergencies of various sorts that are in the book. Um, and it, I, be, I, I became very, very obsessed with wireless telegraphy and, um, <laughs> and war correspondence. But I pulled it back. Lionel James entered the book as a major character, and his story provided a structure, a kind of a bridge in places where I was lacking um, coherence, and it actually was wonderful. But it started out as a kind of a wild digression. So he is connective tissue, isn't he? He's connective yeah. tissue, but it actually just started as I would read anything I could on the Russo-Japanese War, and then I discovered, oh my God, here's a character in the book. I guess one of the things that the, the, the both Linda and um, Judith have touched on here is that never discount what you come across because serendipity plays a great part in research. And once you've, once you've got the stuff, then, and then you can really map out your journey because I think, I think too often too writers decide what they're going to write 
and they might actually um, do themselves a disservice with material they might cr- come across, yeah, which I found can be fleshed out. I found that there were times when I, I needed to know something like about what beverages they were might be drinking in the 16th century and I ended up reading, I'd read um, five to ten books on the, on various subjects, the history of chocolate, the history of coffee, uh, the history of the, you know, and, and, and that would give me a sentence. Yeah, that's very typical. Yeah, yes, and, 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 and so using much. any more than that sentence just bogged everything right down, but there was that one key piece of information. And you've yeah. learned so much as well, of yeah. course. <laughs> um, would you please thank Linda and Judith today? We hope you enjoyed this podcast recorded at the 2010 Perth Writers Festival. If you'd like to hear other sessions from the festival, go to abc.net.au slash Perth slash Writers Festival.